I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. For official purposes, everyone has a number. Yours is number six. I am not a number. I am a person. Six of one, half a dozen of another. Gwen. Hey, pal. It's our first podcast. Yes. I mean, there was one that was kind of uh, created in the uh, ether that may or may not see the light of day, but... Uh... Oh, it's it's going to see the light of day. Okay. All right. On that episode, we talked about a lot of things about the first episode of this uh, show, which probably shouldn't have done, because <laughs> we're going to be talking about that first episode now. This, this show? What what show? That would be uh, The Prisoner, Chris Klimek. Um, hmm. It's an allegorical tale of a man fighting against society and weather balloons. Yes, um, and and in our homage to uh, the the sort of uh, scattershot nature of that show's production and eventual release, um, we are making episodes uh, in a different sequence in which they will be released because uh, that's that's how it went down uh-huh. with the prisoner Absolutely. back in back in '67. I remember it, not at all. Yeah, it's even before my time. Let's back up for a second here. You know, I, I, I think it was going on, it was nigh on four years ago, pal, that you said to me, you know, the 54th anniversary of The Prisoner <laughs> is coming right up, buddy. So if we want to capitalize on that 54th anniversary heat, we better get cracking. Yeah. And at last we have. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a heat mm-hmm. death. <laughs> it's <laughs> a sort of a, it's kind of cool yes. now, uh, this news peg, but it's still a peg. You can still hang a, a boater hat on it. It's a, a peg like Simon. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, welcome. Welcome to the podcast where we take this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series and we push it, stamp it, file it, brief it, debrief it, and number it. We're going to talk McGoohans. We're going to talk MacGuffins. Our inquiry into this still perplexing document is not of a degree partial. It is not of a degree piecemeal. Uh-huh. It is not of a degree casual. Glenn, what is it? It's a degree absolute. That's right. Although I'm now thinking about it now. Now that you said it, McGuins and McGuffins would make a pretty good title too. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, you you already turned me down for unmutual, which was uh, yeah. a, another title I floated, and uh, you, in in truly unmutual fashion, uh-huh. said no. Yeah, not not. I'm not. I wasn't feeling that one. But a degree absolute. I think on the show they just say degree absolute, but we we're trying to say we're trying to get an all definite article on it. We want to get that the Batman uh-huh. energy. Absolutely. <laughs> Batman, Joker, all definite articles. Okay. So the way we're going to break this down, I think, is I will be the nerdy guy who did some research and kind of talk uh, and do some behind-the-scenes uh, BS. And then uh, we'll, we'll go through the episode. The thing that everybody should just keep in mind is that um, McGowan, at the time of this show's filming was an international television star because of the show Danger Man in the UK and Secret Agent here in the Mm. States. Uh, But he had been playing it for a while. He had been doing that show for a while, and he was tired of playing John Drake, the Secret Agent character of that show. And uh, he had been talking to the script editor of that show, uh, George Mark Steen, who um, was a successful novelist at the time, a spy novelist in in particular, Mm. who basically had some connections in the biz, uh, the spy biz, that is. And uh, he approached McGowan with this idea that he had heard about of a rest home of sorts, or a resort for retired spies, where they would be safe, and uh, they'd have their information protected. Uh, And apparently, McGowan became hugely obsessed with that 
image with that thought, so much so that he basically quit Danger Man uh, and left everybody kind of high and dry. He, <laughs> they had been working on another what they call series, we would call season. And uh, it, that's, that's confusing. It's very confusing. It's very confusing. And, and we'll have this confusion throughout. And if I ordered chips. Yes, exactly. What would end up on my plate, Glenn? Yeah, I, I yeah. Don't think and about it. Uh, if you order a boot, you're going to get a trunk. So they had produced two episodes of this next series, this next season, uh, of Danger Man. Uh, and it was the first that they had actually produced episodes in color. So the budget was already that much bigger. And McGowan just said, nope, not doing it anymore, tired. So they stopped production on Danger Man. <laughs> and what they later did was they took those two episodes and combined them into a television movie called Koroshi. Um, which you can see now, and it's a it's an odd little thing. It's a whole uh, series of episodes, two episodes set in Japan. That actually is, at least at the time we're recording this, is on Amazon Prime. Is I it? mean, who knows uh, what Amazon gives? Amazon can take Certainly away. But true. Uh, but yes, I I watched some of it last night. <laughs> and, and, and no, 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 no. It's, that's not a reflection of my level of interest. Okay. You know, there there was just other stuff going on. Yeah. But uh, check your Amazon Prime. Yep. If you're curious. For the last gasp of Danger Man. And and so Lou Grade was the head of ITC, the network that uh, Danger Man was on, and he didn't want to let McGowan out of his stable because, um, again, he was a big star. So McGowan came in for a meeting. He had brought a treatment, uh, some script outlines, and photos of this weird little village in Wales that he said would make a good filming location. So Lou Grade ordered 13 episodes, and the budget was 75,000 pounds per, which is about $190,000, uh, which was phenomenally high. How many stone is that? That's okay. You're gonna you're, you're sticking with the <laughs> with the Brit speak. All right. Well, uh, uh, bubble and squeak. <laughs> Sorry. Bubble and squeak, I say unto you, Chris. Glenn, I was born in Kansas. It's it's farther away from England, from where you were born. That's true. I think. That's true. Bear with me here. Understood. Understood. So he was making two thousand pounds, about five thousand bucks per week, and he got a share of the profits, and that made him, according to this one book I read, the highest paid actor on television. Now, humble brag. Was a, Glenn read a book. I read a book. It was a British book, so maybe highest paid actor on television in UK. Maybe I'm not sure about that, and. He was um, a kind of petty despot because he was <laughs> running the whole thing. He reportedly banned anyone on set from saying the word television because he thought people on television cut corners and we're never going to cut a corner. I, I love him. I just want to say my kind of tyrant. My kind of tyrant? Uh, like a guy who uh, looks down his nose at television? I mean, again, at the time, I guess it was before <laughs> prestige TV. Um, yes. I, actually, I want to derail your narrative just for a second here because I, I did trouble myself to look up what the most popular television programs in the United States mm -hmm were in uh, 1967. Now, I'm, I, I know this ran in England from fall of 67 to the, the winter spring of 68. Right. Might have been a little later here in the States. 67, 68, in the U.S., the most popular show on television was The Andy Griffith Show, followed by The Lucy Show, followed by Gomer Pyle, USMC, followed by Gunsmoke, uh, mm -hmm. Family Affair, Bonanza, The Red Skelton Show, The Dean Martin Show, The Jackie Gleason Show, and something called Saturday Night at the Movies, which I would certainly watch were it, were it still on. Mm -hmm. um, so as far as what seems like uh, something similar, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Yeah, that surprises me because, I mean, this was coming at the time, like Danger Man had, as we talked about before, Danger Man had kind of ushered in this wave of spy TV, uh, both in the UK and in the States. And uh, it surprises me that none of those spy movies, spy sh none of those spy television shows were particularly popular, at least top 10 popular, but in the UK at least, McGowan was a sure thing because he had been such a star and 
they were banking on him, and that's they were throwing all kinds of money at him. He was going to star in it, produce it, and co-write the series. It was then seen as a no-brainer, chiefly because a lot of the high mucky bucks just considered it a sequel uh, to Danger Man, and uh, it would not be that, as we will come to see, but in their minds, that's all it was. And So they were shooting on location, that's one thing that drove up the budget, and also they were devising an entire world of mini-mokes and weird phones and wardrobe and props and sets and all that kind of stuff. Cordless, cordless phones. Uh, On the commentary track of this initial episode, Arrival, production manager Bernie Williams has heard to remark what a a fantastical notion the cordless phone was seen to be at the time. What a cool thing, and what a cool shape, too. I mean, yeah, okay, Star Trek had their communicators, and that's basically what we have now. But it's a very, very cool design. And one of the reasons that McGowan had the power that he did was that uh, all the production of The Prisoner was done by his company, uh, Everyman Films. Now, Everyman, of course, is a medieval morality play. uh, And uh, the very Catholic, the very strict Catholic McGowan, of course, would name it Everyman. He had total control because all ITC, the network, was doing was uh, ponying up the Mm -hmm. dough. And everyone involved on the show worked for McGowan, worked for Everyman. Mm-hmm. So uh, David Tumblin and George Markstein banged away on the script for Arrival. And now we get to the famous Rover discussion where it was originally intended to be, uh, Rover, of course, the watchdog of the village, uh, it was intended to be a hovercraft that had a dome topped by a uh, blue spotlight. Basically, it was, it's been described as kind of a hovering igloo that uh, chased people around. And originally, it was supposed to be able to go climb up walls. Uh, and it, evidently it looked fantastic on land, but as soon as it uh, hit the water, it sank. <laughs> now, there's a story that that happened like in the middle of production, um, that it happened like on one of the first days of filming. But uh, since uh, scholars since then have, have come up with yes. the idea that, it, of course, it didn't because they would not have shipped that out to Port Marion, where it was filmed, um, without doing any testing. So. All of this happened in the testing phase and the pre-production phase, and this whole thing about how um, I sent somebody off to get a weather balloon at the last minute, that's probably bullshit. And um, it was uh, because there are no photos at all of the original rover on location in Port Marion. Not true, Glenn. Oh, really? I'm, I'm going to uh, contradict you there, my friend. Okay. Yes, uh, I, I don't know what, uh, you know, for our, our listeners who are watching the series or revisiting it on uh, via Amazon Prime, I don't know if they have access to these things, but on the Blu-ray set. Ah, uh, okay. There, there is some, some rare footage of the initial failed rover design. It just looks like a, like a little wedding cake on top of a go-kart. Uh-huh. It does not seem scary. It doesn't seem like any application of sound effects could make it frightening or intimidating. I, I, I think the, the weather balloon is so much better because it defies any, any resemblance to any, anything mechanical that we're familiar with. Uh, you know, it seems like, is it organic? I mean, it kind of roars. It kind of sounds like a creature. Uh-huh. Uh, what is it doing to you physically? Is it is it wrapping you in some kind of cellophane and dragging you away? And, and you know, it's more more nightmarish. Yeah, that's true. Um, and uh, I, I, I think that, um, that that's one of the elements that, that drags the show a little further and you know down the spectrum into to science fiction that there's this uh, fantastical and and threatening device mm-hmm. now those photos that you've seen are they on on location are they in Port Marion or are they on the Lotus test track or what I, I can't uh, you know I, I now now I'm I'm not sure whether it actually got the location but I mean it was it was clear it, it didn't work and yeah. I, I think uh, production manager Bernie Williams talks about trying to drive it and uh, apparently the fact that 
whomever had to had to drive this thing also couldn't see made it made it harder to <laughs> to to get the thing to move with any kind of intention which again when this is a machine that we're supposed to be afraid of it it needs to it needs to have intention uh-huh. or at least not to be crashing into to whatever's out there. Now, I have seen the show many times, and every time I'm kind of amazed at how they got Rover to behave, because it is essentially a ball of air uh, on an outside <laughs> on a very windswept section of the of the Welsh coast. And um, if you watch, you can see that they're knitting a lot of different shots together whenever he's moving across a, mm-hmm. a place. And Oh, so you're, you're gendering Rover. Um, I am gendering Rover, I suppose. I suppose. Okay, so All how right. about they? <laughs> Let's call it that. There is a later episode where, where Rover sort of sprouts some secondary and tertiary spheres mm-hmm. to to drag a body back towards land, and and it. I, I can see why you would you would decide Rover is male mm. based on the uh, oh, I see configuration that Rover adopts. Uh, I see what you're saying. Maybe it's uh, maybe yeah. it re- reproduces by budding. Maybe it's asexual. <laughs> um, so basically. It's a weather balloon connected to wires that are pulling it along the streets, but then the shots are reversed, so it seems to be moving forward. That's why you don't see any kind of distent, like distension in the actual surface of the weather balloon, um, hmm. which is very, very smart. Uh, so filming began on the 5th of September 1966. Uh, it always would cost a lot of money to schlep actors out from London, so they tended not to do that. Um, most of the number twos, for example, never made it to the village, never made it to Port Marion. And when they step out of helicopters, for example, on location, as one does in uh, this uh, episode, um, we're just seeing the back of their head because they're using doubles. Uh, all the villagers were locals, paid uh, £2.10 shillings a day, uh, which is about five bucks. Is that even money? Yeah, I know, right? And apparently the cast and crew uh, really treated the place poorly. Uh, there were cigarette butts lying in the streets. <laughs> uh, and this really angered the architect, Mr. Clough Williams Ellis. Uh, not a lot of moms and dads naming their kids Clough anymore, but uh, yeah, there you are. right. Uh, he's he's probably Italian. Yeah, right? that's right. Uh, it very sounds Clough Williams Ellis. Or at least sounds... he he designed in an Italianate style. Yeah, it's a mixture of styles actually, and and uh, it, but it was used many times uh, for like Italian villages uh, on shows like Danger Man. Um, mm. And of course, this guy had no idea what he was in for because not only was the cast and crew running roughshod over the place, the word that Patrick McGowan was filming a television show got out, and there were tourists who uh, came to see the filming. And they filmed most of, uh, pretty much all of it, in one long stretch, all September long. All the, the exteriors for every episode. Uh, so they worked over the weekends. There was only one two-day break in the month of September. And every night they'd go to the local uh, theater to watch the dailies. Uh, and this caused some of the people who were not directly involved with a lot of discussions with Patrick McGowan to grow worried because they couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. Uh, but McGowan kept assuring everybody that he had all the answers in his head and the final script was in his head and all their questions, mm. all their concerns would be put to rest. And then he became... As the filming went on, and we'll talk about this later in subsequent episodes, he became kind of a micromanaging despot because as far as he was concerned, and very rightly so, I think, it was all riding on him. Uh, It was his reputation, his face, (laughs) everything, and he was the boss. So he fired and hired people uh, at the last minute. Uh, He fired and hired an editor or two. He rewrote scripts at the last minute. He re-edited scenes at the last minute. And so George Markstein left the show uh, midway through. Uh, and it was not an amicable split 
at all. Laguna and Mark Steen spent the years since the end of the show kind of beefing, going after each other yeah, in every interview. Right, right, squabbling over whose whose idea it was. Claiming and, credit uh, for it. Claiming, each of them claiming sole credit. George Markstein is seen in the opening titles of each episode. George Markstein is. is actually the guy behind the desk to whom number, or future number six, not John Drake, whatever, whatever we're calling him, hands his resignation personal and confidential by hand. Mm-hmm. Personal and The coming. phrase by hand is written on the envelope that he then hands to the guy. That is how agitated <laughs> he, he was yep and he breaks the tea set yeah oh. breaks the tea set marches down that that very long hallway opens both the dual doors stands dramatically i have never had the pleasure of announcing my my resignation from a job in such spectacularly cinematic fashion yeah but great. uh i'm <laughs> I'm holding out hope. So he's bringing in the Johnny Paycheck energy, taking this job and shoving it. That's what he's doing. That's the vibe he's giving off. Yep. Straight to George Markstein. I'm sure everyone <laughs> who watches the special features on the more than decade old Prisoner Blu-ray box set and sees the archival footage of, of uh, Markstein, who, who died in 1987. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's it's been quite some time. Dalal note his striking resemblance to longtime U2 manager Paul McGinnis. Okay. Dead ringer. All right, Dead all right. good to know, good to know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So the first episode was shown on British TV on September 30th, 1967, and uh, reaction was decidedly mixed because most people were just expecting more of John Drake. And this is where we should segue into talking about the episode itself because it is, it strikes me as a plot-light, world-building heavy episode where not wow. much happens except we kind of get a tour of the the tone and the locale and the central conflict but in terms of moving along with the plot not so much okay this is this is great because i i'm like i'm so glad we're split on this this is certainly the episode of the series that i have seen more than the others mm-hmm. me too and maybe i'm forgetting that subsequent episodes are more event packed than this one but my sense of this was that that it was quite busy, that the story moved along at a rapid clip. And in fact, this is kind of an anomalous episode, or at least one that as we we get further into the series will be revealed as an anomalous episode because it has two stories in it almost, two unsuccessful escape attempts, Mm -hmm. two uh, femmes fatales who each uh, attempt to ingratiate themselves into number six's confidence. Yes. Mm Yes. Because women. (laughs) Uh Women be soft. And uh, try that with Pat McGowan. (laughs) See what happens. (laughs) So I, I like this. I like that that we have such radically different takes here. Yeah. I continue. No, no, no. I mean, I, I just I just think it is a setup episode. It is setting up the entire world, and it's 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 introducing us to him and his desperate desire to get out. Uh, and there's something fascinating about just the way this guy acts when he comes to the parking gate of whatever Secret Service place he comes to. His car could pass easily. His Lotus 7 could pass easily Mm -hmm. under that gate, but he pauses to get the parking ticket because he's still a citizen. He's still a law-abiding guy. He's still a part of the machine. And he gets the rock star parking right in front of the doors. Um, And he's... Well, and it is a rock star car. It is a rock star car, very definitely. I I always thought that seemed like a very flashy car for for this guy. That's a good point. He's very proud of it because he knows every nut and bolt and cog. He built it with his own hands. Thank you. Yeah, Uh, he walks down and we get a tight shot of his face, several tight shots of his face and his flesh-colored eyebrows. So he really <laughs> looks like he doesn't have them, especially when the when the lighting goes overhead. And something about his acting persona, he is uh, pacing like a panther much of the show. And when he's not, he is perfectly still. 
Uh, he is not what you call a fidgety actor. And that just gives this character such a sense of purpose and a sense of uh, intention. Um, and all that happens, you know, the way he expresses emotion is by modulating that magnificent voice of his. Yes. Uh, and, and emphasizing that, that, that final word of each line, it's, it's very run DMC in a way. <laughs> I, I think he, he anticipates <laughs> hip hop by 15 years. Well, I mean, uh, the first time it happens, I think, in this uh, show is when he says, I did not walk away, I resigned. And, it, and that will be, that little whip crack at the end of sentences will be how he emotes. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. Uh, so yeah, let's, let's tick off what will become the opening credits. The first few minutes of the show will be condensed. The, like, three-minute uh-huh. mini-epic chronicling his, um, you know, it chronicles his, his commute uh, <laughs> yep. into uh, somewhere in Westminster down the hall, through the doors, to the unnamed supervisor who in real life is the story editor Mm -hmm. with whom he would break. Who is cleaning his pipe and not making eye contact, if I recall, in a dank, windowless office somewhere in the (laughs) sub-basement. Yes. He returns home uh, to to his flat. We've talked about, uh, you know, we always wanted to do this because we said there was so much to, to unpack from this series, and I think that's because... We see him packing <laughs> in, in, in every every episode. Yes, uh, putting a, a photograph, presumably of his destination, on top of his clothes before closing the suitcase so that he would recognize it when he when he gets there, I guess. Unless that's a, a bit of subterfuge, unless that's that's his uh, you know vestigial secret agent habit, uh, trying to uh, masquerade as a as a typical clueless tourist carrying. <laughs> photos carrying his destination photos of a beach like i always thought in my head whenever i thought about that i just saw them as travel brochures but you're absolutely right it is a giant calendar photo uh that he just slaps it's like uh you know (laughs) eight and a half by eleven that he slaps it on the top this is the palm tree that Mm -hmm. uh i am going to live under for my my days remaining um and and my favorite part of the 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 title sequence when the the gas comes through the door Uh uh he reacts facially the effect of whatever noxious inhalant this is is immediate. Yeah, super immediate. And uh, <laughs> yeah. it's a big apartment. I mean, like, relatively speaking. And that's going to take some time, but it doesn't take any damn time. Because he has been followed on his uh, trip back from uh, work uh, by a hearse. Um, an old, yeah. old-timey, undertakey, uh, British undertakey, complete with top hats, uh, hearse, which is... Very smart, because when they carry his lifeless body out, you know, they're not going to raise a fuss. People are going to think, oh, there's, there goes the hearse people doing what hearses do. Just another dead guy. Mm-hmm. And then, Chris? Uh, then he, he wakes up in a place that he does not seem to, uh, just from the environment of the room, recognize immediately as foreign, as not his room. And it's not until he looks out the window mm-hmm. that he finds himself in what we shall soon learn is... The village. Right. And that first shot of him looking out is not accompanied by a dramatic sting, as it will be in the introduction to every other episode, mm. but a very gentle sort of, I don't know if it's a bazooki. I'm not even sure what it is, but it's uh, <laughs> it's a very tender, like, uh, uh, stringed instrument that just seems kind of forlorn and sad. Uh, Ron, Ron Grainer uh, is responsible for most of the, the music in this episode, uh, including presumably about nine minutes and 45 seconds into this existential spy thriller when we're treated to a, a jazzy arrangement of Pop Goes the Weasel. Mm-hmm. 
theories, Glenn? Is there uh, is there anything to be derived from from that? There's a whole needle drop. There's a whole uh, conversation online about pop, um, pop, which used to, in mm. one in the original ending or an original ending um, would would be like a shot of the planet Earth that would then say pop. Um, so maybe, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, so he wakes up, he looks out, and then he does that thing that he do. Uh, he, he looks um, <laughs> worried, but angry, <laughs> but yep. at the same time, still. <laughs> Expressions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get a terrifying doll that says, welcome to your home from home. Um, Goes outside, sees, looks up, and sees uh, some uh, toe-headed young man looking down on him from a, from a clock tower. Mm-hmm. And and even though their their physical positions are, are reversed, this is that every time I see this episode, I, I I see the guy looking down on him. I want to go, boy, what day is it? <laughs> <laughs> Have they sold the prize turkey? <laughs> um, he he uh, runs up the stairs of the clock tower and finds that uh, the the live carbon-based human he saw looking down on him has become a statue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So already we're, we're, you know, I, you, you pushed back on me when I said, I always found the show eerie, particularly when I, when I saw it, uh, in my pre-adolescence, but, uh, I'm sticking by that man. Everything about this show from the hearse to the, the, the creepy doll in his flat to the, um, the statues that that move with the glowing eyes, which are always welcome in anything. Sure, um, but the doll's the creepiest all, thing on the show. All spooky. The, yeah. the doll's by far the creepiest thing on the show. <laughs> and even uh, though we will get a couple shots inside the hospital of uh, strange psychological experiments, which are legit unsettling um, mm. because they seem kind of out of time in a way that a lot of this show does. Um, still, I, I got to go with the doll. The doll is it's got, it's got a <laughs> wooden face of terror. He wanders around. He is trying to figure out where he is. Uh, first goes to the, the cafe and is told they, they have no police station. Um, I think this is where he tries to go by the map, uh, endearing his, himself to you forever. That, that might be a, a, little, a little later and is, is presented with um, only local maps using the most generic terms to labeling, you know, the beach, the sea, mm-hmm. the, um, the notable... Uh, Mission that the guy tries to upsell him a color map, which uh, many people watching this series as originally broadcast would would have been seeing it in black and white, even though it was was filmed in color. We've seen it in color, and uh, gets gets around to the public information phone box, which uh, has the delightful legend on it: "Push and find out." <laughs> yep. Next to next to the button. Yep. Uh, this is this is where we see that that futuristic cordless phone. I'm told that if you go back to Port Marion now, and of course still operates as a as a tourist resort. That sign has been updated to say, fuck around and find out. <laughs> well, uh, run and find out is, of course, the uh, motto of the of the rabbits and watership down. So, And, uh, uh, and this is also likely, the right. first time, I mean, we've seen it in the credits, but this is the first time we actually see a font that we will come to know very well. Uh, Albertus is the name Albertus, of this, the name of this yes, font, although it is yes. kind I'm, of I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad we have both <laughs> yeah. sought out. But it's actually kind of tweaked. Uh, every letter, lowercase letter E, has kind of like a, a bite taken out of it. So it looks like an uppercase letter E slightly. And uh, there's other little tiny tweaks that go along with it. But yeah, it it strikes me as a really uh, friendly font and an unassuming font, which of course mm. is what makes it so sinister in this setting. Yeah, and and it really is perfectly matched to the the village with uh, with the sort of jarring exception of um, we see two like random bikini babes playing with a beach ball in a little little splash pool. Mm-hmm. That's that seems like a I don't know just a 
continuity error or something because they're they're you know clearly whenever we see a a young attractive woman in in this series generally they have been put there by by design right. in a, a fruitless attempt to to uh if not seduce at, at, at least uh secure the sympathy of number six most of the people we see are old the um implication being that once you get to the village you don't you don't leave true true and the setup here which is kind of lightly touched upon is that you don't know who are the who are the prisoners who are your fellow prisoners and who are secretly working for the uh, power behind the village that will be a thing that we'll get really trotted out in a big way in the next episode we're going to talk about free for all but is an undercurrent here because he doesn't know who to trust and he instinctively doesn't trust uh, anybody Right. So he, uh, let's see, after after these, these uh, completely unsuccessful initial attempts to, to find out where he is, what the hell's going on, uh, he returns to his flat and finds himself summoned by phone to breakfast with number two at uh, number two's residence, the, the Green Dome, uh, later to be immortalized in an influential porn film uh, in, in the early 70s. Okay. okay. I'm sorry. That was the green door. Yes, that it was, was the green door. It certainly that's, was. Uh, that's my yeah, Glenn regrets the era. <laughs> the green dome, by the way, was actually originally a firehouse, part of a firehouse in Port Marion. Hmm. Well, this is where we're introduced to to our our first number two. Um, this is a uh, Guy Dolman, uh-huh. uh, a Kiwi actor who was very busy in the in the spy genre at this time uh concurrent with uh, his his i think one and only appearance in the prisoner here he is in two of the harry palmer um spy movies starring michael caine mm-hmm. uh, the ipcris file and a funeral in berlin uh also he is in thunderball 007 number 004 as uh, as count lippy so uh <laughs> lippy. the dude uh, dude kind of specializes which um is not what you you might infer from from this performance, where he has a very kind of patrician remove. I, I I'd say even compared to the other number twos, who we will come to know, he seems a little supercilious. Uh, we see him punching buttons with his umbrella because he's he's not going to do the uh, manual labor of actually touching a button <laughs> without some kind of prophylactic between him and the uh, you know the surface. So I, I think between that and uh, the muffler. Yep. And the other dead giveaway really is later on, a little bit later on in the show, uh, he mentions that there is a social club and it's members only, but I'll see what I can do to yeah. get you in, which is <laughs> right. the distillation of exactly what you're talking about, Chris, that patrician remove that um, sort of convivial but um, strict uh, affect. And the, the second number two we're going to meet is much less ingratiating and more th- overtly threatening. No. Uh, right. This one is is played by by George Baker. Mm-hmm. He seems seems a little more a little more brutish, a little more more working class. Although it's all relative, yeah. because I mean, every everyone on this show is is, is pretty. Um, they're all verbal. They're all schooled. They're they're you know. It, it's it's kind of a patrician vibe mm-hmm. overall in the village. I think absolutely. And so the thing that we're supposed to be unsettled by, one thing we're supposed to be unsettled by, is that uh, they know his breakfast order. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, maybe that tells us something about who number six is, because he has the same breakfast every day. Uh, I don't have the same breakfast every day. I couldn't. Uh, but he. Oh, oh, I, I do. Yeah, of course you do. <laughs> it's a protein bar, isn't it? <laughs> it's it, it, certainly not eggs and bacon, because gross. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the bacon looked terrible. The eggs, the eggs looked like eggs. Uh, I gotta say, this is this show is the reason. This scene is the reason that when I drink tea, I drink it with lemon, just as. Um, <laughs> 
Twin Peaks made me start drinking coffee. This show mm-hmm. has inspired sure. in me that I will never drink a, a milky tea or a sugary tea. I will only drink it with lemon. Glenn, I know I know exactly what you mean. Uh, I had never had a cappuccino before in 1991 when the film Hudson Hawk was released, okay. but um, <laughs> I, I became a cappuccino aficionado thereafter. <laughs> so, so I get it. Uh, cappuccino, yes, excellent. That's, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a Port Marion portmanteau. Ah, uh, look at that! Look at what we're doing for here. all y'all. Uh, then there's this thing with this magic book that every time you flip a page c- causes the image on the screen to skip as hell. It's like this is a kind of demented PowerPoint before there was demented PowerPoints. Yes. Now, I, I, I want to, to zero in on uh, on this. This is the, the point where number two is, is revealing to uh, number six that they, they have records going back to his birth. This is where... His uh, his character, his unnamed character's birth is, uh, we find out, has the same birthday in real life as uh, Patrick McGowan. Mm-hmm. March nineteenth, nineteen twenty-eight, and there's a there's a mention uh, when when they're showing him more recent uh, like surveillance photographs of the adult, not John Drake, whomever whomever number six is uh, purported to be. Uh, he said, "Oh, and we we got you coming back from from Singapore, coming down with a bit of a cold." Now I did look this up. Uh, John Drake does go to Singapore on a mission in the Danger Man episode, a very dangerous game. Mm. Mm. Title seems a bit bit hat on a hat there, yeah. but uh, yeah, uh, which was directed by by Don Don Chafee, who directed uh, Arrival mm-hmm. as well as uh, three other episodes of of The Prisoner. And this scene is where it happens, where where all the magic happens. This is where pushed. Filed, indexed, stamped, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. Yes. Uh, comes yes. to us, and uh, did 16-year-old me memorize that? Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. <laughs> the minute it happened, I knew that was uh, an iconic moment. Well, this is also our, our first look at that that astonishing set, which yeah. will be endlessly redressed. It's number two's, uh, what do you want to call it, office, observatory, control room, mm-hmm. etc., but it's also... Like it becomes the infirmary, it, it becomes the, but there's an episode where there's a, a village art exhibit mm-hmm. and it, it's the gallery. They got a lot of use out of this truly striking and memorable set that I, I, I will say, so eager am I to suspend my disbelief that I, I seldom recognize things like that. A redressed set, it, it is a monumental piece of, of design. It's one of the things, along with Rover, that I think of when I think about the series. Uh, not only because it has some kind of weird periscope seesaw uh-huh. in in some of its iterations where two guys are sitting on either end of a like oscillating platform staring into viewfinders at at what yeah we yeah. We, we know now yeah uh, um and it is linked to Rover in a very simple way because the chair that number two always sits in is uh, perfectly spherical, just like Rover. And in my head, it was white. All these years, and I, mm. when I just watched it again today, it's like, oh, it's a black chair and always was a black chair. And ah. it is also, very importantly, because as number two is talking to number six, number six is pacing and walking around the circular set, it is a self-scooching chair. You don't see number two's little legs <laughs> kind of following him around. It is... I think that would be a lot of physical exertion for this, at least the Guy Dolman incarnation of number two. Yeah. There, there'd be a increased risk of perspiration yep. there. So, uh, no. So this is where the uh, gentlemanly, patriarchal sort of one-upsmanship happens, starts to devolve into something a little bit more raw, a little bit more real. That results in a uh, helicopter tour 
of the village. Where uh, number two is, is, is this is his attempt to, to convince number six that there there is no escape, which is a little, uh, I don't know that that sense of confinement is, is necessarily conveyed by this pleasant little helicopter tour. Bernie Williams does have a funny story about the day they shot all this stuff. Port Marion was still full of rent-paying tourists uh, mm-hmm. when they were, were shooting all this, and apparently they had not swept out their chimneys in, in many years. So the downdraft from the helicopter blades just caused a lot of uh, tourists to be covered in ash and soot. Wow. And, uh, he, and, and you know, as soon as that happened, he thought that their location permit was going to be revoked. This is where number two assures number six that we have everything here, water, electricity, <laughs> which that's, that's, there's your Maslow's hierarchy of needs right sure. there. Uh, Water mi- number one. Mini-mogs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, Mini-mogs. Cordless phones. Umbrellas. Uh, uh, doors that, that uh, open and shut electrically mm-hmm. behind you, mm-hmm. uh, thereby preventing transmission of, of disease. Why do we still not have those? That actually seems useful. Um, I don't know. I think I think you get uh, your little tootsies jammed in, jammed in a doorway. And, and we do have them on cars, on, on trunks of cars nowadays. Indeed. Um, Indeed. They visit the labor exchange, and I think, if I'm a betting man, I think this is the moment when people at home, watching the show for the first time in 1968 or whatever, are thinking to themselves, you know what? This is, a, this is about John Drake being kidnapped and taken to this place. This, though, this whole thing with the aptitude tests and the questionnaire, this is the moment when McGowan's take that bureaucracy... Maybe there's more than what it looks like is going on here. Maybe it's the aptitude test, the questionnaire, all that stuff. Maybe there's something else going on. And uh, I'm not just saying that because of the Tinker Toys, although the Tinker Toys are a big part of it. You just fill in your race, religion, hobbies, what you like to read, what you like to eat, what you were, what you want to be, any family illnesses, any politics. So here we're getting a sense of McGowan slash number six is a revulsion of the kind of invasion of privacy that common questions like he would hate. Uh-huh. He would hate it today. He would hate everything about all this privacy that we eagerly surrender uh, yeah. to technology. Uh, he would he would be uh, I, he might make a new show about it. Do you think he had the whole cast and crew take the Myers-Briggs mm-hmm. uh, personality mm-hmm. inventory or not? Uh, not only think it was a thing then, was it? It was not <laughs> even a thing. Uh, I don't know. But he uh, tries to escape. We get those uh, statues of Hadrian or whoever the hell with their glowing eyes. And there's a Buddha oh, in there it, just it, because it's it. very cosmopolitan. Now, now I think I might be getting this wrong, but I, I, I thought Bernie Williams said that those, those statues are not in fact at Port Mirion. Those are, those are in the, the back lot somewhere at MGM Burnham Wood. So uh, it would be a fun game to go back and, and see what other movies you can find those statues <laughs> in. <laughs> um, you found that unsettling, huh? Just, boy, that always looked a little uh, cheese ball to me. Huh? That, yes, that, that seemed more corny to me than, than frightening. It was, it was very Scooby-Doo with like the, the painting with the eyes mm-hmm. that, that follow you as you walk across the room. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that happened on uh, the prisoner's original tour is we meet Rover for the first time um, when number two commands everybody walking around the fountain to stop and one dude doesn't. Um, and he uh, gets rovered in a big old way. Although, if you notice, when we get we see that shot of the smothering, it's Patrick McGowan's face. Which yeah, is, I thought so. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely Patrick McGowan's face. If you're watching this as initially 
broadcast and and even as initially you know rebroadcast many times the decades before DVD and Blu-ray and freeze frame capabilities came along, you might not yeah be able to to confirm that. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think it was a matter of them not thinking to get the extra to stick his face in a balloon on the day, and yeah. so they just had to use that because they used that shot. Right, and and we're just going to call whenever you know the occasion. Uh, demands that we refer to, to that rover victim again. We're going to call him Waldo yeah. because he is wearing the Good horizontal point. stripes. He's got the little red cap on. He's got the sunglasses. Uh, he he may have inspired that that uh, best-selling series of children's books. Uh, so, the number six tries to escape. He runs through the woods. Rover comes. Uh, he runs along the beach. <laughs> he gets a, a chase scene that uh, I don't. I wouldn't call it pulse pounding, but it's a chase scene <laughs> with two goons. In a mini moke, uh, chasing yep. after him, and he's a chase scene with a very recognizable stunt double. Definitely, but we do get a chance to see the control room for the first time. That that room with mm. the seesaw, and we hear the immortal words. First, we hear the words "yellow alert," but it's not until a little bit later, which we now know, "orange alert" means release the rover, and uh, it is intoned for the first time, and it is it will be reused and reused and reused over the course mm. of this as, yeah, as uh, number six gets ropered. Now, if you recall the scene at the fountain with Waldo, it seems to me, looking back on it, that I, I had always taken that scene as number two, noticing that something was was going wrong, and uh, that's what, and so Rover showed up, independent of what number two is doing. It now seems to me that number two is demonstrating exactly what happens. He's forced, He's telling everybody to stand still, one guy doesn't because he just seems uh, tweaked for some reason. So yeah. It just seems a little, yeah. uh, and that is a a show of force. Does that does it strike you as that, or is it absolutely okay? All right, yeah. I, I didn't have that interpretation until just today. Uh, he wakes up in a hospital in the village, and a intentionally creepy woman is knitting and looking over him, and gives her line readings so much sinister force that it becomes comical. Yeah. I don't know if you read about the, the flap over, uh, I can't remember which publication it was that, that uh, published the review of Promising Young Woman, but their critic commented on Carrie Mulligan's appearance in this film. And apparently Mulligan herself wrote a wrote an angry letter. And Alyssa Rosenberg, I, I don't know if you know uh, Alyssa, but she wrote a column about this in the in the Washington Post last week saying... No, critics do need to be able to discuss actors' appearances in a in a review. That's that's fair game. It's not sexist. It's not. Uh, I mean, she you know, without get, going into well, the uh, specifics of this, uh, of course <laughs> it can. Of course it can. But but uh, you know, I mean, her point was that like like she thought some of the the protests were were too broad. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was saying there are there are plenty of of instances where it is perfectly appropriate for for a critic to write about an, an actor's mm-hmm. appearance. Um, so when I tell you that the the woman who is in the rocking chair next to, <laughs> as as every hospital room has, mm. <laughs> a rocking chair that continues to rock after she stands up from it, uh, I I kind of thought this actor was gonna like pull off a Mission Impossible mask or something, and and clearly you saw it too. Right, I, I was getting it more from her affect because that tone, just the way she says, "I have mm. to let the doctors know that you've woken up," is just like the. Th- thing that the head on the woman in Total Recall stayed for a surprise. <laughs> Two weeks. Two weeks, exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, he meets his old friend Cobb, a uh, very British name, in the hospital. Um, 
And also the name of Leonardo DiCaprio's character in, in Inception. Sure, so, sure. Uh, I, I think we'll find lots of things that Christopher Nolan later later pulled out of the series for reuse in his own oeuvre. Okay, all right. Um, and here we get our introduction to, to a recurring theme, which is McGowan slash number six's uh, pitched distrust of psychology in all its forms. And particularly uh, a perfectly righteous uh, and very correct disgust for um, lobotomies, the, lo- the practice of lobotomy, which was still pretty popular back then uh, at that time. And yeah, he's not picking up what psychology is putting down. The patient who the doctor has heard to comment is, is progressing nicely, intoning some kind of gibberish that was voiced by Patrick McGowan. Mm-hmm. The actor whose face we see is, in fact, a very young Michael Chiklis. Oh, um, come on. Who would... Come on, I had for seconds. <laughs> for three seconds you had me. Not coincidentally, it is, uh, he is staring at a water fountain, a tiny water fountain with a tiny rover atop it. And this is causing that reaction. It is exactly the same way that we first met Rover. So this is, uh, there's a connection here. But again, people watching at home are now thinking to themselves, wow, so this doesn't really connect in any logical way <laughs> this this show is working no. at kind of cross purposes to itself in some ways um we meet a doctor who is just such a great um british doctor like he's the he's he's <laughs> he is not doing anything stylized he could be in an episode of all creatures great and small he is just um there is no there's nothing sinister about him which of course is what makes him situationally sinister uh they do a uh, medical exam of number six, which is basically just shining a light on him, and we get a punch card because 1967. Yeah. Uh, and there's a moment when he, the doctor says, "We're going to get you some new clothes," and uh, I, I have rewound the shot several times. This is the shot where number six says, "What about my old ones?" And he cocks an eyebrow, uh, an almost non-existent eyebrow, but it's cocked, and he, it is <laughs> uh, a challenging look. Um, but it is a, it's a look of someone trying to figure out somebody else's game. And the thing about this doctor, he's got no game. He's just doing yeah. his job. He's not. He doesn't seem right. to be this uh, sinister force. Uh, and that, and, and number six can't even muster up enough anger at this poor, poor old dude because he's just, you know, a functionary. Exactly. He can tell himself that he's patient, but it doesn't even occur to him that he is crushing a little act of dissent here by refusing to even answer the question of what became of this man's clothes. Uh-huh. Uh, I need to tell you also, uh, so since one of one of the other commentary voices on, on this episode is Tony Sloman, who is the film librarian for this series. Uh-huh. So his whole concern over the first half of this episode is when are we going to get him into the, into the blazer? Because we can reuse those shots. Ah, <laughs> he kept saying, Magoon would always tell him like, oh, well, we don't need me running up the clock tower. We've got that. And he would always say, Pat, we don't because you're wearing a black shirt and a black blazer uh-huh. in that scene he's just like when when is this guy going to get into proper costume so that we can interchange shots from episode to episode right and he is given an umbrella he's given a boater and he's given of course the uh, khakis mr Rogers shoes and white piping jacket that will become the his uniform he's also given his badge which he rejects um this is a side note here chris but i've always wondered about the numbering system in the village it mm-hmm. seems to me that it is meant to connote importance uh, so a low number like six, it's not random that he has a number. So like the people who are now at number 98 and 53, 
they're down a little bit lower. But it seems yeah. to me odd that if 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 I'm right and the numbering does connote some kind of uh, importance rating, then they're being they're kind of shining them on by by giving them a high yeah. number like that. They're kind of sure. buttering them up, maybe. Yes, it's an attempt at flattery or something. Because he is, we, we never meet numbers three, four, or five, or do we meet a five? I think we might meet a five at some point. Uh, I don't, I don't remember that. I mean, we we are about to meet number nine right. in this episode, but I don't, I don't want to drag you ahead before you're okay. No, you're finished. With it. That's it. I just always wondered about it. I wanted it to have a logical reason, and I'm not sure it does. Mm-hmm. It might, it might be perfectly random. But speaking of numbers, um, after we find out, we are told. Interestingly, and importantly, we're told that his friend Cobb has jumped out a window. When we see that exterior shot of the infirmary, mm-hmm. uh, my, my thought was uh, hmm, to actually have that, that leap be fatal, you'd, you'd just have to land on your it's head. It's head first. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> I mean, exactly you, what I thought. Yeah, I mean, it's a three-story. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's possible, yep. but everything would have to go right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we meet our second number two, our less friendly number two, our uh, kind of a bigger dick number two, mm. who is all about uh, getting rid of the carrot and just, just the stick. He's... That's yep. what this dude is, uh, and this is where we. No, he he presses buttons with his own fingers. <laughs> That's Glenn. right. He's a he's a man of action, uh, or at least what passes for action in this show. Uh, I, this is where we get. I didn't walk out. I resigned, um, and uh, we will come back to that speech pattern uh, a great deal. Friend of yours? You knew him? No. You're crying. Funerals make me emotional. Even those are people you don't know. Yes. Well, this is when we're introduced to, to number nine. This is uh, Virginia Maskell. Mm-hmm. We, we skipped ahead a little bit here. Yeah. I mean, there, there is a, a bit where we see number six's first interaction with a, a woman. It's a, a maid who is sent to, to his apartment. But he certainly reacts as though it's an unwanted sexual advance with that same kind of scolding. He doesn't just say no. It's not no thank you. He says, get out. Uh-huh. And then she instantly confesses that she's been promised her freedom if she would, would report on his activity. And he kind of mocks her for believing them. So so there's 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 like a layer of cruelty along with his rejection. Um, she says she was raised in the village, which may be a lie, uh-huh. but certainly would, would give us some, some more critical context about the, the nature of this place. If there are subsequent generations of, of people being born and... and growing to adulthood here. And then our second attempt to insinuate themselves into sympathy by a woman in this is uh, number nine, played by Virginia Maskell. First of all, I want to ask you, Glenn, what happens when you take a nine and you wind up and you just give it a good old, like, 180-degree sure. vertical spin? Sure, sure, what, sure. Uh, yeah. yeah, that, that, yeah. That's, uh, it's, so what are you, what's the connection you're making here? I think we, well, I mean, if you need me to tell you. Or do you just want me to say, nice? Uh, I want to slow down for a second and praise Virginia Maskell because I, I, I think we can agree. Some of the actors who appear only in a single episode of the series, they seem like they were more available mm-hmm. than uh, exceptional. Yep. And she is great. She is fantastic. I think she, in, in her two or three scenes, conveys genuine concern, genuine pathos, genuine suffering. She is terrific. She is terrific. She's playing a woman who apparently got involved with Cobb uh, during their time together in the village and had hatched an escape plot, uh, we are told, that is all dependent on what, Chris? An electropass. 
Um, yes. Which is <laughs> she says it twice. She does say it twice, and the second time she she says it, she says it sort of uh, frostily because she through clenched teeth because she's trying to get him to get it, and uh, yeah. and he, she just says it's an electropass. Did you think? And I, I actually don't have an answer on this one. Did uh, was the electropass always intended to be a, a wristwatch where the arms just spin on it, or? or was did they imagine something grander and stranger? I have no than, idea. Than I have no prompt. idea. But it does. Okay. It does. It makes a very loud beeping noise, which you'd think <laughs> you'd think would be distracting. Uh-huh. Sure. Um, uh, yeah. And so uh, she passes him uh, an electropass so that he can commandeer the helicopter that flies into yes. the village and stays a couple hours. Um, I don't know if that happens daily or weekly or what, but uh, it happens. And. Uh, because it is synchronized with the security system, we are told. Mm-hmm. It's actually when when he is cautiously approaching Rover, have, having already seen Rover's dangerous capabilities, but uh, not not sure whether he should trust the Electro Pass to to keep it at bay. And that's that's when we see the the two bikini babes mm-hmm. uh, just just. <laughs> <laughs> Equally uh, uninterested in Rover or the helicopter or, or any of it. Really into that beach ball. Right, right. Well, that's the thing. You're, here you are. You're, you're creating a scene of actual tension uh, involving a helicopter, a wristwatch, and a ball. Like, yep. and, and a lot of that is accomplished through uh, how it is filmed uh, because we see... Uh, Rover kind of nudging up against him and nudging up against mm-hmm. the helicopter, but yeah. most of it, I think, is the sound design because the sound of Rover is unsettling. That roar yeah, yeah. is uh, is nightmare fuel, especially when you compare it to something that is not that doesn't have a face uh, to get to be scared of that shows any emotion. It is that combination of blank affect and uh, real anger in that roar that makes it uh, lodge in your head completely agree uh, the one uh, you, you know we haven't remarked yet upon the fact that not, not at Port Marion but at uh, MGM Bornemwood Stanley Kubrick was making 2001 at the same time as the prisoner was in in production there I thought about how Kubrick famously um, put his own breathing into the the soundtrack of the scene in 2001 when when Dave Bowman is murdering Hal mm-hmm. by pulling chips out of its brain because apparently there was a, a discussion of something similar for for rover mm-hmm. um, they 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 tried a, a sound mix where it it breathed, mm-hmm. and uh, decided that was too much. That made it too too explicitly organic. Mm. So took that out and, and arrived at I don't know the the screaming wraiths or whatever. <laughs> whatever. Well, if you squint, if you squint your ears, which you can't do, mm. but pretend you can. If you squint your ears, it it can sound mechanical. It can sound, mm. uh, but it's right there on the line between mechanical and organic in a really, really interesting way. So, uh, he gets up on the helicopter um, and <laughs> comes right around again. Again, this is the thing that there wasn't a lot of tension in. <laughs> like getting into the helicopter, that was actually like edge of your seat stuff. Watching him fight the stick. Um, less so yes. in terms of pulse pounding action, which the the Bond franchise will will borrow will. Uh, thirteen years later, and for your eyes only, yep. as a character who, for legal reasons they cannot identify as Blofeld, uh, offers Bond a delicatessen and stainless steel <laughs> in exchange for uh, sparing his life. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that on our for your eyes only episode. Oh God, that's the cold open to for yeah. your eyes only. Yes, of course, and it's really cold, <laughs> super cold. Um, <laughs> So, this is the reveal that Cobb ain't dead. Cobb was in on it the whole time. Now, what exactly was his motivation here? To show up at number six 
and then promptly die, forcing right. number six to do what? Or was this always to push him into yeah, the arms of like, number nine, who was supposed to do something and monitor him? And, right, know. who Cobb does have kind of a cold line to the new number two about how I was go easy on the girl. She was quite upset at my funeral. Mm-hmm. So her feelings for, for him were apparently genuine. Mm-hmm. His for her were not. I mean, she was the means to an end for him. But yeah, it is it is really weird. Like, what was the thought that if we dropped some prior colleague of number sixes into this environment and have him feign amnesia they think number six is going to tell his buddy in the hospital why he resigned i mean if they're going to do that we need Cobb try to try to engage him mm-hmm. it, it doesn't really make sense that that Cobb is just claiming to have amnesia and is only responding to number six <laughs> grabbing his friend by the lapels and shaking him in his hospital bed. There's a lot which, which, uh, of a lot of grabbing people. At, uh, he's he's yeah. kind of handsy, especially at the... I, I think that's unmutual. Yeah, I think I uh, grabbing someone in a hospital bed and manhandling But also, when unmutual. he is asking the poor uh, waitress at the cafe, the very first thing that happens in the village is he spins her around, grabs her arm. Her, Breaks that poor woman's arm. And, and looks spins like, her yeah, around. Uh, and uh, she she rolls with it. Just, you know, I, I, yeah, but, uh, yeah. but I guess she must be used to that, to people being a little perturbed. So, yeah, the number nine plot wouldn't work, I think, if he didn't know Cobb and, know, and, and spot that she knew Cobb. And then, because that lowers his defenses a little bit and gets him to trust her where otherwise he probably wouldn't. Maybe that's what that whole brief scene in the hospital is doing. Maybe that's what it's intended mm-hmm. to do, was to kind of lower his defenses in a way that those they will not <laughs> very rarely get lowered again. One of the central questions of the show um, brings up all the time and never truly answers until the last episode in which it emphatically doesn't answer it, is which side runs the village? Now, Cobb has a line here saying, Come a long journey. Just to keep my new masters waiting. We'll be delighted with you. Give them our compliments. I will. Oh, wow. You'll find him a tough nut to crack. I'll get to say. I have a long right. journey, and I mustn't mm-hmm. keep my new masters waiting. How does that not explicitly tell us that the other side runs the village? Like, I, I don't understand why it's even a question anymore, because that seems to me to be clear. No? Yeah. What am I missing? Well, see, I, I think that points towards a, a greater certainty over what this was meant to be than the way it was ultimately realized. When you were saying earlier how, how McGowan would, would insist to people during the production, oh, I have it all in my head, I know what's going on, I, I, I have that, that same George Lucasian kind of, uh, <laughs> there are nine Star Wars movies in my head, and I just I basically just have to transcribe them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Luke and Leia were siblings, and it was always meant to be that way, and uh, I, I don't think that's true. Yeah. Cobb leaves by saying Alfitazane, which I thought was a really smart thing when I first yeah. thought about it because there was, at that time, there was East and West Germany. They were two sides. So it, right. didn't, it didn't give anything and away. And num- number two says au revoir. But that's, that kind of undercut my whole thinking. It's like, oh, they're just... Cobb says Alfitazane. Yeah, they're just yeah, being yeah, international. Yeah. But again, it does strike me as the other side has gotten a lot of uh, the prisoners' ex-co-workers to come over to their side. And maybe that's too simplistic, and maybe the the series wants to be more ambiguous than that, but that exchange with him, him saying, I mustn't keep my new masters waiting, is is like that's a slam dunk, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to call that the Markstein touch. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I, I, I'm going to say it's always George Markstein who wants to pull this in the direction of being a Byzantine and yet ultimately earthbound, understandable, clearly resolvable spy story. 
and Magoon kicking against that. You know, uh, it just occurred to me that we're we might be having a eerie parallel with I mentioned Twin Peaks earlier, but there is Mark Frost and David Lynch. Exactly. Uh, yes. There's yes. one who is all imagistic. Lynch never wanted to reveal Laura Palmer's killer, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know if it was Frost or ABC who said no. You eventually have no, to give us. Uh, yeah. Dude, come on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that that that's an interesting thing. I mean, it does seem to me that Frost is such a old hand kind of episodic narrative storyteller and Lynch is many things. I do not think of him as a storyteller first. I think of him as an artist first. And the way this show, uh, the production of the show happened is that a lot, there's four episodes that they added on at the last minute that they all filmed at the same time that are the ones that have a very different tone than the previous 13 because George Markstein wasn't around. And when we get to those, we'll talk about uh, how, how different they feel and how much more allegorical and elusive they are because they are not subservient to um, a, a strict storytelling B-plot, C-plot kind of structure. I'm looking forward to that. And, of course, this episode ends with my favorite thing about the show, maybe, which is the very, very Terry Gilliam bit where number six's face <laughs> zooms out at us <laughs> only to be have a gate come crashing down upon it. Uh, right. It is so of its time. It feels so, yeah. and and it happens so fast that you're just sitting here thinking that we're all pawns, my dear. And then all of a sudden, whoosh, it brings you up short. His face, and then a giant foot coming <laughs> yeah, down from exactly. the top of the frame with the like fart sound. You were waiting it's... for the foot. That's that's basically it. You're just waiting waiting for the foot. Um, is there anything else we need to touch on here on this episode that uh, is setting up? Uh, I mean, th- well, again, I, I maintain I mean, this is all set up. I, I maintain this is all about okay. uh, identifying the 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 teams and and a central dynamic yeah. of the show. Well, this is not a series that was made in the traditional, least American way, where there's a pilot and maybe the pilot gets picked up. But this does remind me of a lot of pilots, and that the the whole premise is there. It almost feels complete because mm-hmm. we don't get any any resolutions in in this one other than just the the sort of broad conclusion that the designers of the village, uh, the, the puppet masters, are are very sophisticated and have anticipated every possible move, mm-hmm. and that's kind of where we're going to wind up eventually. Yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, the next episode we'll be talking about was the next one that was shown, which was uh, the Chimes of Big Ben. It was not the second episode filmed. And in fact, for a while there, they were going to air Dance of the Dead as the second episode, which was... This is what I was going to ask you, is is which one should we actually watch next? Now, on the the Blu-ray and on Amazon Prime, Chimes of Big Ben is the one that that comes up. Right. I I think we should try to recapture the the air date experience, at least the American air date experience. But Dance of the Dead was the fourth one produced and was originally slotted to be the second episode until they realized... It's too weird. It's too there's there is too much of the uh, allegorical presence hanging over that, and we need something a little bit more simple, a lot more straightforward than Dance of the Dead was, and and I think a lot less sinister. I think, uh, and we also have the great Liam McKern, so it's a win-win as far as I'm uh, concerned. Yes, boy, yeah, McKern is the is the number two that lingers in my mind. I mean, I think probably because he's the one who comes back. He's the one who's who's there in, in Fallout at the end. Yeah. 
the strength of the show is the fact that it is constantly replacing number twos, and, and they each have a slightly different dynamic with number six um, and with their masters, or master, I suppose we should say. Mm-hmm. But uh, there is something so uh, charming about old Rumpole of the Bailey uh, that uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing that episode again because I haven't seen it in years. I also uh, was convinced that it gave away the location of the village, which I re- now realize it uh, doesn't do, but we'll talk about it next week. All right. You have any any odds and ends? You have any ephemera that we didn't cover? I'm ephemera out. No, got nothing. Okay. So the scene in number six is flat, mm-hmm. uh, where he finds he can't turn the radio off. He smashes the radio, sure. and the soothing classical music just gets louder. That is right out of Duck Soup, the the Marx Brothers film. That's true. I don't know if that's uh, like an intentional pull, mm-hmm. but there it is. There it is, and. This is where the illusion that it's he's he's back in his old apartment uh, goes disappears because that wall uh, slides up, revealing a, uh, a a dining room and a kitchen and a bathroom and a bedroom. And did his apartment not have any of those things? How did he not notice uh, yeah, that there was no kitchen no, that's, uh, in his well, in his apartment? I mean, you know, he he lived for his work. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things I think is more thoughtful about the current iteration of James Bond versus the prior iterations is in Inspector. For all that movie's flaws, when we see James Bond's flat, it right. looks like he just moved in. Like there's one chair mm-hmm. and a TV and then a bunch of boxes on the floor. It looks like he doesn't spend any time there. Which, which of course, it always seemed wrong to me when uh, when we saw Roger Moore's flat. It, it looked like he had a butler. Yeah, that's uh, true. It looked it looked way too cozy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the notion that when somebody is newly transported to the village, they are placed in a in a room that looks very like where they left. And then you get the big reveal. I mean, we'll see that happen again with another uh, character yeah. in a later episode. I think that's just done, I mean, f- for us to get the cool looking out the window shot? Or is it? Is there some psychological reasoning where you're trying to cushion the blow? Is that the idea here? Well, I don't know. We're, we're going to have to look for the pattern as this obligatory scene repeats itself. Mm-hmm. The other thing we don't <laughs> have in this uh, in this episode is the classic, where am I in the village, the, the back and forth, the dialogue. Yeah, which yeah. will become a linchpin of the series and will clue us in when it's gone from a single episode that something is hinky, something is up with number two. So uh, <laughs> something is hinky in uh, number two, which, which everyone remembers from Hamlet. That's right. It's right. Another poll. Another uh, poll. Another. You are a theater critic. I can tell because you re- you referenced Hamlet. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a play that I saw. <laughs> It's a movie that I saw. We see the shopkeeper, okay, who sells him the map. That shopkeeper will come back, and he gives him the sign of, uh, it's basically what what we would call today an okay sign, uh, uh, be seeing you, um, which Mm -hmm. is also emblematic of the series. We will jete right past the fact that it's also now a white power symbol. (laughs) We're going to get right past that because apparently an actress who worked on Dance of the Dead found Maguna, a particularly uh, religious man, and she asked him what this was about. And he said, and again, he gave many different answers to this question when asked, but one of them was that it was a uh, signal of uh, first century Christians, uh, the symbol of the fish with the uh, the two arcs kind of coming together. Ichthus, it is called. Uh, who knows? Who knows what it is? It's probably just something he came up with, but it's there now. It's part of the, well, part of the uh, lore. Uh, okay. So, so a thought that I want to leave you with uh, in, until next week. That same scene that uh, ends with our first utterance of Be Seeing You from, from the shopkeeper. But it begins with the shopkeeper telling a lady, 
Help yourself to a pineapple, man. Had that become the famous catchphrase <laughs> from this show, there's uh, a line in 2001, see you next Wednesday, mm-hmm. that uh, that lots of, or maybe it's talk to you next Wednesday. God, I should really get this right. Oh. But uh, that a lot of other filmmakers have continually echoed as a little, a little signifier of something. Well, if they had traded the, the penny farthing for the pineapple, I mean, we wouldn't be able to look at SpongeBob the same way today. That's certainly true. I... <laughs> The woman in in that scene, no, no one has ever been more delighted to to be offered a free pineapple. <laughs> but another Bernie Williams uh, Williamsism. He points out the flaw that they again and again suggest that the village is an island. Although the map, <laughs> both maps, mm-hmm. <laughs> number six briefly peruses show that it clearly is not. It made me think of when I was watching Aliens with the James Cameron commentary track on, and they get to the scene where they're they're preparing their defenses and you know welding over the air ducts and getting ready to make their last stand. And Cameron is bemoaning the facts, like, well, if you look closely at the blueprint, you can see it doesn't match the building that they're in. And uh, I always hated that, but you're just going to have to forgive that. I, I feel like the difference between a. Uh an island and not an island is a bit more noticeable to the casual viewer. Yeah, see, that didn't bug me because even though it is because there's mountains, like, you know, mount, islands have mountains. So how, who, what's to say what's beyond the mountains? They're clearly labeled as the mountains. They are clearly labeled as the mountains in Albertus. That's a, that's a callback. That's a callback. That's right. That's what it was. All right. Do you have outro music? Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klimek. You can email the Citizens Advice Bureau at adegreeabsolute at gmail.com. You can tweet us at notanumberpod. As ever, Glenn and I would like to thank our families without whose unfailing support this project could never have come to fruition. That's another mistake they made. Get out! The room tone is the zoom tone for making love.